Welcome to Talking Property, where you get the inside information into what's going on in the Australian and Asian property markets from leading property and investment experts. Welcome to Australian Property Journal's Talking Property Podcast. My name is Nelson Yap, editor and publisher of Australian Property Journal. I'd like to welcome our guest back. Uh, you uh, have heard from him before in a number of other podcasts, and that's uh, Benjamin Martin-Henry, Head of Real Estate Research Pacific from Real Capital Analytics. Welcome back to Australian Property Journal's Talking Property Podcast, Ben. Thanks very much, Nelson. It's great to be back again. A lot has happened uh, for 2021. I mean, uh, many things really surprised us. Uh, talk to us. Tell us our list. Uh, tell our listeners about that. Yeah, 2021. It certainly did surprise on the upside, didn't it? It was. Um, I'd say we had more than a bounce back from from 2020 levels, which obviously were heavily impacted by by COVID. Um, <clears throat> so 2021 was likely to bounce back, but we've we've definitely more than bounced back. It's we had a record year for 2021. Uh, volumes are up about 82% on 2020. And that's kind of the strongest bounce back we've ever seen post a sort of economic crisis. You know, even after the GFC, volumes only bounced back by about 50% on year on year. So it really was an extraordinary comeback for the <clears throat> for the commercial property sector, which is really good to see. Yeah, and I think the RCA um, statistics show that the volumes were about $70.8 billion, which ex- eclipsed the previous record of 64.5. Um, is that pent-up demand or what was driving that sort of uh, that return of investors to the market? So, yeah, the industrial sector really was the, the, the hottest market in town, has been over the last few years. Um, and last year, we had another record year. So that's two record years in a row we've had for the industrial sector. Once again, it was the number one sector uh, for, for volumes. I think what really drove last year's um, record year was the significant portfolios that we saw trade in the industrial sector. Yeah, the mega so deals. Normally, mm. Yeah, exactly. 2021 is definitely going to go down as a year of the mega deal. And normally around 12% of portfolio transactions, sorry, portfolio transactions account for about 12% of overall volumes in any given year. Last year, that was actually 25%. So it really was a big jump. And again, purely driven by the, the industrial market. We had some of those massive deals, you know, obviously the Milestone portfolio, Blackstone Fark deals, Cube as well, uh, Blackstone picking up a big share of Dolts as well. So, I mean, there's, there's so many of them. Uh, that really did drive the drive the market last year. I think that goes to our previous discussions before in our other podcasts where we talked about uh, these institutions are growing through acquisition, um, yeah. just acquiring big portfolios and just going, you know, it, it, um, and I suppose there's so much of that capital around too that they need to find a home. Well, yeah, that's it. I mean, debt is still relatively cheap, isn't it? So they're, um, I wouldn't say people have money to burn, but they certainly are looking for a home to place a lot of this capital. And like I said, in times of uncertainty, real estate really does jump to the forefront of investor minds because that's that's exactly the what property investment is all about is that steady, stable income stream. And of course, investors really are piling into that industrial sector, which is, again, it's not a trend that was started by COVID. You know, people were getting into industrial in a, a bit more rapidly pre-COVID as the whole online retail penetration rates increased in across the globe. But, uh, particularly in Australia as well. So it definitely was a trend that we were already seeing happening, 
but given that you know we were all stuck at home we couldn't really go shopping retail or sorry non-essential retail was closed in various lockdowns we did have to buy an awful lot of our uh, retail goods online and of course that means that you do start to see uh, increasing need for those last mile distribution warehouses and distribution warehouses in, in general as well. I think I saw recent statistics that um, actually uh, 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 was brought to my attention by a researcher um, uh, is that the goods in terms of online transactions or online purchases, goods now represent 25% in Australia. Groceries, only 4%. So it's so you can imagine why there's so much need for that last mile logistics now um, because of, you know, the, the, the good, goods purchases yeah. now across Australia, 75% bricks and mortar, but 25% is now online. Yeah, I'm surprised it's so high. I, I do know that it, that might is that for just any given year, or as, oh, so that as... was for last year. So in terms of yeah, on, okay. just in in terms of online retail sales, it's still fifteen percent of the uh, total market. Um, okay. But for yeah. goods itself, it's twenty five percent. Wow! So yeah. that's all those um, things that we're buying shoes and all that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, that really, yeah, it really has. That's no surprise, really, that we 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 do, do all shop an awful lot more online now. Um, and I think people that were not necessarily reluctant to do it in the past, but didn't really do a lot of it in the past, they've definitely got more used to it. So I imagine, I don't think that rate's really going to fall anytime soon. I think it will only only increase. Um, I'm not surprised about groceries being so low. I, I definitely know that most people do prefer to go and pick your own avocado and pick your own piece of cheese and, and you know, try your own veg, et cetera. So I'm not really surprised that um, that, that hasn't grown so much. But the benefit of that not growing is, of course, that those neighborhood retail centers you know those grocery anchored ones they performed extremely well in 2021 um again we all had to shop more locally we couldn't you know a lot of us were locked down we couldn't go outside our lga or five kilometer radius or, or what have you so we were having to shop far more locally at these these smaller centers and of course that means that you know you've got increased you know, turnover rents and you know the, the values will go up of course investors follow that trend as well and yeah we saw um, an awful lot of uh, neighbourhood shopping centres trade last year. Well, the uh, the, the statistics you you've got was that uh, the retail sector outperformed the office sector for the first time since two thousand fifteen. For Q four, it did indeed. Um, <clears throat> I think retail industrial is obviously going to get all the headlines over the last couple of years, but for me, retail was the most interesting and possibly the most surprising sector last year. Um, it certainly grew the most out of the core sectors compared to 2020, but again, comparing to a you know a, a very very quiet year is always you're going to throw out you these massive percentage increases. So I think retail was up sort of 150% or, or what have you on 2020. But importantly, if you look at the five-year average, the, so the pre-COVID five-year average from 2015 to 2019, it, uh, retail sales were actually up on that which is quite a rarity. We didn't see that across anywhere else in the world, you know, across our more, more, more comparable markets like, you know, the US, the UK, Germany, Singapore, et cetera. The retail sales were still below those pre-COVID averages. Australia was definitely an outlier in that, in that space. And the way the year kind of developed was interesting as well. As I mentioned before, we had a lot of activity in those grocery anchored shopping centres. So they were the smaller centres. They started off the year, you know, we saw, saw lots of them, Transact, but as the year started to progress, we we we, we saw some sub regionals trades, um, a couple of big large format retail ones, a couple of big box, and then towards the end of the year, of course, we had those two super regional shopping centres go as well, the 
PAC and MAC, Pacific Fair Macquarie Centre. So the year definitely did progress for the for the retail sector. And I think it really did surprise a lot of people that there was so much activity in that in that retail space. And I guess there are, there are a few reasons for that. I mean, we did see that regional retail really did boom over the last couple of years compared to pre-COVID averages. And I think that's not just a function of the fact that a lot of people were, were leaving capital cities and moving out to more regional locations. And of course, investors there, savvy investors obviously followed those population trends because an increase in population will naturally lead to an increase in retail spend. So we saw big jumps in regional um, retail sales. Yes, the um, uh, I think the CBA Commonwealth Bank uh, statistics came out uh, about a week and a half ago that showed that the migration towards regional Australia is the highest level we've ever seen. Um, so it, there you go. It, it looks like it's more of a not just a trend or not just a fad, but it's a permanent thing. I mean, I suppose you can't say fad if you're going to buy <laughs> in uh, regional <laughs> Victoria and go, yeah, I'm moving out again in a couple of months' time back. Yeah, well, I think that's that's the question, isn't it? Where there's a lot of um, a lot of debate about what's a cyclical shift and what's a structural shift, because obviously there's heaps of cyclical shifts because of because of COVID naturally. But what are what are these structural shifts, and will we have any permanent structural shifts? So, for context, industrial that's definitely a cyclical shift that happened well before COVID. You know, there was a lot of investment going into that sector. Um, retail again, I think that's just a cyclical shift as well. Um, retail has got to a, the pricing point where investors are happy to get back into it because they are look, they are still getting sort of 20, 25% discounts um, compared to sort of pre-COVID book values. So that's that's definitely a cyclical one. But I'm thinking of a structural one. It might actually be investors picking up more regional assets. We did see a big shift from domestic investors out into the more regional areas, um, sort of outside the main markets of Sydney and Melbourne. So that might be a bit of a bit of a structural shift. Um, whereas we didn't really see that with cross-border, weirdly, <coughs> cross-border investors, it's almost a mirror image of, of the two, cross-border and domestic. We saw cross-border increase their allocation to, to Sydney and Melbourne and really decrease their allocation to, to the rest of Australia. I think for offshore investors, 75% of all transactions they were involved in were in Sydney and Melbourne. And when you talk about sort of the investors heading into regional uh, Australia, um, what are the sort of... Uh, markets that they're targeting and so in terms of deal tiers uh what what values are we looking at obviously it's smaller than the cbd ones yeah. but i'm just thinking is it because it's cheaper too uh for the investors who have now been priced up by the big 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 guns you know buying um six eight hundred million dollar portfolios etc <laughs> <laughs> I th- yeah, it, look, it is it is a combination. Uh, we, investors are definitely sort of looking at assets that are you know slightly higher yielding for sure, because like you said, they are being priced out of the major metropolitan markets. And it also depends on the asset your asset type you're buying to, because there's very little spread between office retail and industrial these days. They're all kind of you know around that four 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 and a quarter percent um, mark. You don't get a lot of spread just from jumping to one to the other. So you are having to look at more regional. Um, locations where you will get slightly better yielding assets, and I think there's a, I think Gold Coast is an interesting one at the moment. I, I think it might have come out of that CBA report you just mentioned there that it's the fastest growing non-capital city or something in in Australia, and we've certainly seen that come through in in the volumes as well. So in terms of ranking, um, Gold Coast retail placed about 28th in 2019 in terms of volumes for for major markets. It jumped 10 spots to 18th in 2020. And it jumped a further 10 spots to 8th in 2021. So that, 
to, for context, it outstripped Melbourne retail, Perth industrial, Perth office, Brisbane retail, even Canberra office. So really, we are seeing a big shift to um, more regional locations. And in terms of price points, again, it just, it just does depend on, on what you're looking at, because obviously we had a rather large shopping centre sell in Gold Coast in the last year at a billion dollars or, or whatever the final figure was. That's obviously, that's, that's quite a large one. Um, but you're right, there are certainly smaller assets that are available to investors at a much lower price point for some of these guys that, that do have, you know, that sort of 20 to $30 million that they, they, they don't want to put in a bank because interest rates are so low these days, you don't really get much value for money doing that. And yes, they have, that have been priced out of those more metropolitan markets. There certainly does appear to be a fair amount of um, capital seeking, slightly lower priced assets. And that of course leads on to the fact that there's so much activity in the alternative sector for that exact reason. They're slightly smaller assets, these childcare assets and self-storage assets, they're, they're slightly cheaper. Again, which is a big reason we saw such such activity in those in those sectors last year. Real Capital Analytics is the authority on property deals, the players, and the trends that drive the commercial real estate investment markets. Having recorded over $20 trillion of commercial transactions, data is at the forefront of RCA's business. And now I, I suppose that we'll move on to the, uh, the sector which everyone's talking about because today is the first day Sydney and Melbourne uh, got that return to offices um, as mm. we record this podcast. No more masks in, <laughs> in workplaces. So we're encouraging people back into the CBD. Um, towards the end of the year, uh, offices were starting to show some signs of, um, of uh, you know, Coming back into or CBDs, I mean uh, CBDs coming back to life, but then Omicron hit, <laughs> so um, <laughs> that kind of delayed everything. But in terms of uh, the capital markets, what did we see happen uh, for offices, the sector? So the office sector was a bit of a weird one in in 2021. Normally, we see a lot of office around 40% of all office deals close in Q4 offices do tend to take a little bit longer to, to settle than, than some of the other sectors. But we didn't really see that to a great extent in 21. Um, and my understanding is, is because there still is a little bit of uncertainty around the, the future that the office will play in the, in the workplace, the due diligence seems to be taking a little bit longer. So it's just taking a bit more time to get these deals across the line. So we did see a lot of deals that we're expecting to close in 21 they've been pushed out to maybe Q1 this year. So in terms of comparing office volumes to five-year averages, they were slightly below pre-COVID averages, but I do suspect that's more of a timing issue as opposed to a lack of appetite for, for the office market. There still is a heap of activity in the office sector. I mean, we've seen some very big deals already announced this year. I think we've got billion worth of deals already announced. in, and we've seen also big listings come on on the market too. Mm. Absolutely. But just from last year, we still have around $2.5 billion worth of offices awaiting settlement. So these are ones we we did expect to settle in Q4, and they just haven't done it. So they're going to roll over into Q1 this year. And I, yeah, I really expect the Q1 will probably be one of the, if not the largest ever quarter for office transactions. Because there's just so much, there is so much appetite for offices, and definitely the you know the the death of the office sector really was prematurely reported, because people aren't. I mean, investors are piling into the into the space. We've seen what seven hundred million dollars for um, key quarter, and we've got 
grove than the place last year went for went for a billion you know people aren't dropping a billion dollars on an office asset if they don't think it has a future mm. so and, and we talked about the previous thing too yeah and we talked about this previously too about um when you had the previous research which showed that uh you know even with flex work um uh, flexible workplace you know rules and things like that some people working from home on 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 some days and coming in it the impact on the office market in terms of uh footprint is minimal yeah it's a tricky one to measure isn't it because you if suddenly 80 percent of your workforce shows up and you've given back 40 percent of your space then you're mm. in trouble <laughs> so shoulder to shoulder absolutely and generally you know off, most particularly large offices they don't try to to accommodate 100 percent of their workforce in any given day so they're only really can probably accommodate sort of 65 to 75 in that kind of range i, I believe is, is about average so i it's i, I haven't heard of offices or companies giving back a lot of office space at the moment it's just rejigging it that's that's all it is like not everybody's going to show up on a tuesday or suddenly everybody might show up on a thursday and if, again if you don't have the right amount of space then you are going to have a you are going to have a bit of a pinch there so i think it i think people are still trying to come to terms with what the future of the, the office is like you know is it three days a week everybody comes in tuesday to thursday no one's in there on monday to friday for example if that's the case there's not enough space for people do we need more space? Do we need larger breakout areas to being, because it, when we do bring people back to the office, it's more you know, team-based working. So you're sitting in your team again and you need big breakout rooms. Is it that kind of stuff? It's, I think there's a, lot of dis, there's a lot of discussion. There's a lot up in the air about how the office is going to evolve and how it's going to work in the future. But I, I don't think it's, it's, certainly not, it's certainly not dead. It's just, it's just a natural evolution. Things need to change ever so slightly. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I think, um, yeah, the idea that offices was just, you know, the, the antiquated thing where we all could just go in and work in our cubicles and things like that. It, we're moving, <laughs> well, we've moved away from that pre-COVID, but yeah. now it's like COVID's brought on this new thing. And, um, yeah, it only, only time will tell what will happen um, oh, exactly. with the market. Yeah, yeah with uh, how tenants. Now, another surprise is the hotel sector. Obviously, we haven't had domestic tourism because borders uh, between states were even, you know, locked up, up, um, up until a few months ago, WA just opened or is opening. Um, and then we have, and now international visitors are just coming, starting to trickle back in, but the mm. hotel sector uh, was a surprise in the capital markets. It was particularly in Q4. We had over a billion dollars transact in Q4, which is, you know, double q3 um it was a it was the largest quarter for the year and i think it was the largest quarter since about 2016 as well so it really was a big jump and again for the for the start of the year i was very concerned i wasn't going to have anything to say about hotels because nothing was happening but thankfully people started to, to get back into the sector and again i think it's oh, there's a heap of reasons and I'm, I'm sure some of these assets did trade discounts to, to book value but there's also the the thought that there's going to be a lot of revenge spending, you know, people are suddenly, you know, the borders are open. Let's, let's all go traveling. Let's all go stay. Let's just go to, let's just go to Melbourne for a couple of days. Let's go to Brisbane for a couple of days or, or what have you. I think investors are, are banking on that kind of revenge, revenge spending. Um, and some of the, some of the hotels that have traded, the good quality assets too. Sofitel went within Sydney. Uh, I think Parliament Square traded in, um, in Hobart this year. I know that's a bit of a mixed use, but it's still a, it's still a hotel deal as well. 
so it, it does seem that investors are getting are getting back into the into the sector um, and we still have I think it's about it's close to a billion dollars worth of hotels awaiting settlement from 2021 as well you know we have the the Murbeck tucker box portfolio as well I believe is still still pending um, so 2021 it certainly did I think it revived hopes in the in the hotel sector after 2020 hotels was one of the worst performing asset classes in, in 2020 for obvious reasons but 2021 really has bounced back for the sector and again some of these deals did fall over in will fall into 2022 so i think 2022 is so far shaping up to be a pretty reasonable year for the sector as well which you know it's it's great news for for the sector it's good that we can all travel again it's, it's great for those for those owners of, of hotels as well yes absolutely uh well, and you know for the tourism operators too um who've been yes. doing it for two years yes yeah um yeah now looking at the top performing markets uh, which which cities? Obviously, we we you mentioned Sydney and Melbourne before, but what other top market or top cities were there uh, in the in twenty twenty one? So yeah, Sydney office retained its status as the number one investment market. It's just just the perennial number one. It doesn't really change too much. Um, and the top five is all, always filled with Sydney, and Melbourne across the the core sectors: office office retail and industrial. Sydney retail crept in at number five again, driven by some, you know, Mac- McCoy Centre and also uh, like Q- you know QVB, the galleries, um, for example. Um, it, interesting ones that came up. Um, I think Canberra office was an interesting one. It's had close to a billion dollars worth of offices transact last year. I'll throw you a crazy percentage. That's up five hundred twenty-one percent on twenty twenty. It's very interesting. Even there's a federal <laughs> election coming up. Normally. There's, you know, investors. Oh, from previous trends we've seen, normally investors sort of, you know, put a hold on Canberra, knowing that there's an election coming up because they don't know what the, you know, whether the new, whether the incumbent or a new government will change the, uh, the public service. But so that's so that's quite interesting. Yeah, yeah. I think a third of those volumes was from Fifty Marcus Clark, which was sold by Mirai, which is um, South Korean. South Korean funds tend to all be close-ended, so I think they had to exit that asset um, last year. So that's certain, that certainly did uh, boost volumes. But yes, you're right. It's in a federal in election year, we tend to see a bit more muted or muted sorry, investment in uh, in Canberra. Uh, but no, not not last year. I think people wanted to get in there, and maybe they are expecting a change of government. And generally, when Labor comes in, they take up more space. So perhaps that's that's a reason. Um, it is interesting because I, we looked at we've been tracking auction residential auction. I know this is different to oh, yeah. capital market store, but as we as I said, the trend to usually is the mark, Canberra goes quiet within twelve months of an election. But we haven't seen mm. that in the residential auctions either. We've seen really? record record uh, record clearance rates still, big sales still coming through. Although clearance rates are down about ten percent from last year. Um, but yeah, mm. it is very interesting. And I was having a chat with a property professional about this. I said, this is going against every trend that we've seen in previous election cycles where people sort of, you know, take a step back and sort of, what's it, it's a spectator mode where they just watch and see what happens. Yeah. Mm. Wait and see. Yeah. Mm. Well, you know, I, I suppose we have had some upheaval in the last couple of years. Maybe this is changing some of our, some of our trends. Again. Um, yes, I think again, so. Yeah. <laughs> again. Yeah. I suppose it could be that a lot of people are moving to the ACT as well 
from from New South Wales in particular. That might be a reason that you're seeing a big jump in in residential. And of course, if there's you know if there's a lot of people, it means obviously it means there's a lot more jobs going going in the market. So more space is is need is needed. Um, Another interesting one from last year was Adelaide Retail. There's a couple of big deals that were done down down in Adelaide. Um, again, up 300 odd percent, uh, crazy numbers. But again, it, it does show that investors are looking to move out of just the traditional Sydney and Melbourne market and get back into um, less core markets and indeed that retail space as well. Mm. And I think Adelaide is, uh, you know, with the uh, rules, sorry, with the stamp duty changes that they made, it made mm. it attractive for some investors who were looking outside, you know, the Melbourne and Sydney markets that, hey, it's somewhere that you can buy and you'd have to pay stamp duty. So, <laughs> Absolutely. It makes, mm. makes a big difference. Another thing with Adelaide is, as we we're talking about before, about potentially um, occupiers giving back some space during over the last couple of years. If you have an office in Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, Adelaide, and you're looking to save money, you're not going to be giving back space in Adelaide where you're paying 350 bucks a square metre for, for a 10-person office. You're going to be looking to cut back that space in Sydney where you're paying $1,200 a square metre. So Adelaide offices performed, uh, their rents performed quite well compared to other markets. And indeed, I think that's why we saw a bit more activity in, in Adelaide as well last year because it just it just has performed slightly better than than some of the some of the East Coast markets throughout this whole period. Mm. And now we're looking at deal tiers. That's always the interesting part for a lot of our readers and listeners. Like which market segments or which tier segments were the uh, highest or the most, uh, you know, outperformed last year in, in 2021? Um, the I think it was the 150 million dollar bracket. That certainly did see the <laughs> mega deal, the largest, <laughs> yeah, yeah, the largest jump. And it was a lot of that was driven by um, those retail assets, actually. A lot of those sub-regionals traded around the you know, $150 million mark. Um, and because it, you know, activity increased so much in that space, it really did help drive those um, at that particular bracket. But I think one of the more interesting ones was the actually the lower end of the, of the deal tier space. Those smaller deals, you know, the one, $1 million to $6 million range. So over the last few years, we haven't actually seen those uh, that deal tier have any kind of growth. I think the last time we saw a positive change on the year before was 20, 2016, I think it was, or 2017. And even then it was only up only up 3% on the previous year. But in 2021, the deal volume one to six million actually increased 33%. So it really was a big jump. And again, it speaks to that whole investors moving outside of capital cities to, to get high yielding assets and, and changing their investment um, uh, thesis and maybe looking at some of those more alternative assets and they, you know, those uh, self-storage, childcare, et cetera, they definitely trade between that 0 and $30 million bracket. So that was probably the most surprising one of the year that we saw such a big jump in that in that, um, in that that bracket. Obviously, all brackets did increase on, on 2020. That was always going to happen. Um, but it's that turnaround from previous years for that, that low end because, again, we haven't seen that for four or five years. We haven't seen any kind of any kind of growth that uh, that one to six million that investors uh, obviously that across the spectrum for, for for the different property sectors that they're getting more confident now with looking at alternative assets you know away from the traditional of okay i must have a retail i must have a industrial mm. yeah I, I definitely think so and i i think um 
the situation that we've we found ourselves in over the last couple of years, at, it has lent itself to improving some of the performance of these these lesser known alternative asset classes. Just a couple of a couple of easy ones. Self storage had a record year last year, and again because we were working from home or for much of the year we were forced to work from home, a lot of us realised that we have too much space to to turn that second bedroom into an office. So we had to move out furniture, move out beds or whatever, and put them into self-storage units. Well, love the money, can you find space in a self-storage unit around me anymore? It's just completely chock-a-block. And if you just look at the development pipeline, there's, there's so much activity, there's so much self-storage space being built. And again, it's because, not just because of COVID, of course, but also house prices continue to climb in, in our major markets, and which means people can't afford that necessarily get that second bedroom. So they're having to store some of their their, their stuff in, in self-storage warehouses. So that's a, a big reason we saw that drive. And again, it's that, that lower price point too. Um, another good one is childcare, of course, it's having a, it has had another record year. I think it's two years in a row it's had a record year. And childcare, and people often say, look, you see investors moving up the yield curve and looking at these alternative assets. And like, it's yes and no, because childcare assets, you know, some of them are yielding sort of three, three and a half percent. So they're very, very, very tight. Yeah, very tight. But because they have those long leases, you know, those 10 to 15 year leases with, you know, generally an upwards rent review each year, it's quite, it's a very safe asset class. Mm. Um, and it's an asset class again, supported by governments too. So well, that that's makes the other it thing. very attractive. Yeah, it certainly is supported government. The government has spent a lot of money trying to clean up the, you know, the the childcare's perception that it's not a particularly well-run asset class. So there's they've spent a lot trying to tidy that up over the last few years or so. And that obviously gives investors far more confidence to get into that sector as well. A lot more institutional investment is going into these sectors. So, and again, they all kind of sit around that naught to, you know, to $10 million range, because essentially some of them are just big, big houses that have been converted into a, into a childcare center. So they're still, they're still relatively small. And again, it's, you know, investors have seen, seen the, um, seen what's happened in these sectors and they're really taking advantage of what's, uh, what's going on at the moment and, and decided to get into them. And that just means we'll we'll see far more institutional investment over the next over the next few years. I'm, I'm sure as you know, institutional investors they they try these asset classes out and they realise actually this is a pretty good asset class. So let's get into more. Let's get more and more, and we'll, we'll buy more and more. Real Capital Analytics is the authority on property deals, the players, and the trends that drive the commercial real estate investment markets. Having recorded over $20 trillion of commercial transactions, data is at the forefront of RCA's business. Mm. And speaking of institutions looking at these uh, alternatives, I mean, we had uh, um, the uh, acquisition of ALE property group um so the takeover yep. sorry um so that's a big player that's now been absorbed um i hate to use the term but i'm going to go with it uh, are pub investments drying up <laughs> uh, oh, where wow. where to from here <laughs> our listeners are probably cringing right now at me oh, using yeah, that term they're still listening now gosh <laughs> turned off after that nelson <laughs> yeah oh, i apologize no, I, I do love a good pun no yeah. i do love a good pun um, yes yeah, I think Charter Hall are now the largest owner of pubs in Australia. After that, they already were a pretty big land owner anyway. Um, and yeah, then they acquired ALE for what it was, $1.7 billion, um, which again may surprise a lot of people because when they acquired that portfolio, of course, pubs were shut everywhere, or at least in New South Wales and Victoria, they were, they were shut. Um, so it may have surprised um, quite a lot of people, but pubs are great assets. You know, they're, they're triple net lease, so they're very defensive. 
um, and a lot of ALE's pub portfolio, again, were in regional locations and regional pubs were doing extremely well. Um, so yeah, it's it's always funny calling pubs an alternative asset class, which you know I suppose it is, but every year we seem to have like a billion dollars worth of transactions in the pub sector, you know, so it's it's kind of that alternative stalwart. It's it's always there. But of course, last year with a you know a nearly two billion dollar portfolio, we had another record year um, for one of these alternative sectors. Just mm, yeah, I think this is one of those one of those structural changes that we'll start to see a lot more activity in the in the alternative spaces. You know, investors get a bit of a taste for it and realize yeah, these are pretty good asset classes. Let's uh, let's get some more. Mm, mm. Now, you, earlier you touched upon how well Australia has compared uh, has performed, sorry, compared to our global counterparts. Um, can you offer us a bit more in-depth view of how that uh, you know which sectors uh, outperform in Australia outperformed uh, when it comes to uh, compared to globally? Absolutely. So if we look at how Australia has compared to some of our major markets, where in terms of year on year, I don't know why too much about year on year. Everybody's kind of up, but some some markets were actually didn't actually do that well compared to 2020, like Japan, France, Hong Kong. They're still a little bit down on. Well, not Hong Kong, sorry, Japan, France, still a bit down on 2020. But again, I prefer to compare to pre-COVID averages. And in terms of pre-COVID averages, we're only really lagging the US and Germany. Now, the thing with those two markets is, obviously, multifamily is an extremely defensive asset class. You know, in, in good times, people rent. In bad times, people rent. So there's always a need for, for rent. And multifamily nearly doubled in the uh, sales volumes nearly doubled in the US and in Germany I think they were they were doubled or triple or something I'm not entirely sure but they they really did really did boom um, again because they were investors favorite asset class throughout this entire period was extraordinarily defensive asset classes and we don't have that market here we have as you well know a very nascent built to rent sector so there's nothing you can actually buy so it's very very um it's very immature. Yeah, so there's so we couldn't investors couldn't flock to that sector at all. So the fact that we only lagged the US and Germany in terms of pre-COVID performance is quite remarkable because it means that investors were piling into the core sectors, you know, the office retail and obviously industrial. Now, if we look at those other markets that I just mentioned, the US and Germany, so they're both still well down on pre-COVID averages for offices both still well down for pre-COVID averages for retail as well. Whereas for Australia, we're only slightly behind pre-COVID averages for offices, offices and we've obviously smashed pre-COVID averages for retail. So Australia's doing extremely well in terms of retail and, and very well in terms of offices as well. Um, so it is very different to a lot of other markets out there. It is, it is quite strange how well, our, how, well, how active our investor base has been in a retail sector when Basically, no other country is seeing any kind of interest, any kind of large interest in that retail space. So it is, it is quite an interesting one. Australia is definitely an outlier when it comes to that. Um, there's not a lot you can say about the industrial sector other than it's not an Australian phenomenon. The industrial volumes are booming everywhere, everywhere. in the world. Mm. Yeah, so we're just on par <laughs> with everybody else. I think, I think our, compared to pre-COVID averages, we're one of, the, one of the better performers as industrial. But again, everyone's just absolutely, absolutely smashing it when it comes to industrial. So I think overall, Australia did exceptionally well in 21 compared to a lot of our other a lot of our other markets. And again, there's there's many reasons for that. You can argue that maybe our government handled the whole situation a little bit better, um, each to their own in terms of that argument. But offshore investors 
continued to come to Australia as well, uh, whereas a lot of offshore investment dried up in kind of those Western European markets. Um, and I think it obviously offshore investors, have, they, I think they count for around 30 to 32% of, of transactions in any given year in Australia. And for all the fundamental reasons why investors previously came to Australia, you can apply them throughout this period as well. You know, we're very transparent in what we're doing. Our legal system is very well structured and it's, it's it, again, it's quite transparent. People, people understand it quite well. Um, and our government's quite stable as well. I know we change our prime minister every five minutes or so, but it's, it's because when they try, it's because when they try to do something, they get they get stopped by their party. So nothing really changes too much. You don't have these, you know, you get one party in and then you get another party in, and everything completely changes. We we tend not to have that too much. So it's a, it is weirdly it is quite stable politically. But the changes, the frequent changes in PMs yeah. we've had over the past decade or so, it's been stable government. Yeah. You could put it that way. Yeah. Well, at least there will be exactly. peaceful transition of power. So that's all that matters. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Um, That inspires confidence, which is what investors look for. Anyway, um, well, thank you very much for that, Ben. Um, That was very insightful, as usual. Um, And it was a pleasure having you on Australian Property Journal's Talking Property Podcast. Pleasure was all mine, Nelson. Always good to chat.